судьбу нахалеют знаменат, Облака поднимись и плывут. На зеленом ковре стадиона разноцветные майки цветут. Hello and welcome back to the Russian Football News Podcast. We've got a little bit of a different lineup this week, and it's partly in celebration and partly to honour Spartak's own Europa League group formation in the fact that they were bottom with two games left, looking a little bit ropey as to whether they were going to get through. And then very last minute, they had a big shake-up, changed things around and managed to top the group. So in lieu of that, we've had a little bit of a very late shake-up here ourselves, and it's definitely a red and white takeover, as I'm now joined by Hanu Trivedi. Hi, uh, pleasure to be on. Uh, the the Krasnye Belie Pratya are here. I hope I pronounced that right. <laughs> I think I did. Um, it's, it's it's the Spartak takeover. Um, pleasure to be on. And you're looking forward to breaking the game now. I don't think you need to worry too much about pronunciations <laughs> with me with me on the pod with my notoriously horrendous pronunciation of anything Russian. But to hopefully remedy that, we have got RFN's Duke of Statenberg, the, the stats prof himself, and also fellow Spartak fan, translator, historian, and statistician, Alexei Zakharov. Uh, hi. <clears throat> Um, well, that's what, that was quite an introduction. <laughs> <laughs> I think Andrew created... Was it yourself or Andrew? I can't remember now. I think it was Andrew who first said the Duke of Statenberg or, or Count Statula. I think he, I think he said it was it was absolutely great. But uh, for those who may not have not heard Alexei's voice before, is his debut on the pod. Uh, Alexei's a long, long-term RFN writer. Uh, he used to also write for the, the old uh, Spartak site, Pro Spartak, and some of our more historic and, and translated reads on the website are, are, are from Alexei himself. I think one of my one of my favourites is your your uh, long read on on Cherenkov, wasn't it, Alexei? Just after after his uh, death, it, I think it was uh, Paramonov. Oh, Paramonov. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, Paramonov's after Paramonov's death, and it was a a really nice uh, tr- touching tribute to to the man's life. Not not long after as well, and. I think the one of the biggest hits we've ever had as a series in general, and I recommend all the listeners to go out and, and find them, is the the uh, translation of Nikolai Storitsyn's biography, uh, which is a, a really fascinating read, not just to find some historical perspective on football in the country, but also how forward-thinking he was and how much of the forethought he had in the game, because a lot of what he foresaw when he wrote that is actually taking place and has been taking place in the last 10 years. So I'll tweet them out for the listeners after after the podcast for everyone to go. And I highly recommend just take some time aside because they're quite long. I think it's an eight-piece series, but I do highly recommend it. And Obviously, because it is the Red and White Takeover, we're going to jump straight into the Spartak game from midweek. As everyone, I think, will know now, Spartak won 1-0 away in Warsaw against Legia. Uh, the game started off and pretty much went on for the majority where a lot of Legia possession, a lot of uh, Legia dominance of territory, but Spartak, again, very solid defensively all throughout the game and took their chance when it arrived. Uh, Zelenkan Bakayev pressing high in his usual way that he always does, very, very effective from the front like that, pounced on a mistake, um, and slotted it past Artaboric with a really nice left-footed finish after 17 minutes. 
the game continued in a, in a relatively similar trend. Um, Legia with a lot of possession, again, like I said, but not really creating too much, in my opinion, until the last, latter stages. I think at one point they had more yellow cards than they did shots on target, <laughs> which is pretty much indicative of how their first half went. And then I think the last 20 minutes, we could probably all attest to having individual uh, palpitations and terrifying biting of nails for the entirety of the end of the game. Uh, the the very end is when the controversy happened. Uh, there was a penalty awarded when uh, Samajijo took down uh, Viteshka in the box. Uh, it took about 400 years for the referee to decide whether or not it was a penalty. Eventually, that was awarded on VAR. Uh, Thomas Peckhardt stood, uh, stood up to take the penalty and, as we all know, Sasha Selikov saved it. He was mobbed at the end, highly regarded as the hero. And for me, it was quite funny that he did so because I think for about 25 minutes before that, every single time Legia walked into Spartak's half, the English commentators were just saying, oh, Selikov hasn't made a clean sheet this year at all. Or like, Selikov hasn't done this this year, which is I thought was a little bit disparaging because he's been so good since his, since his debut, apart from maybe that one mistake. But Hanu first, how was that last 20 minutes for you? <laughs> Um, extremely nerve-wracking, especially with the burden of uh, actually like having to take a lot of incoherent thoughts and make them into pieces of content. It was uh, very stressful, but that sort of like symbolized our entire Europa League campaign ever since the second game. Uh, both legs against Napoli were very stressful. Both games against Leicester were very stressful. Um, but this one, towards the end, it, it seemed like we were sort of trundling along fine. After the first goal, it seemed like we would uh, hang in there because we were we were relying on Napoli to win as well to top the group. And I honestly did not expect us to top the group at, at any point in time. Um, but especially when that late penalty was given, it was it was heartbreaking. But I honestly, I just started praying. And <laughs> thankfully for, for Selikov, who deserves all the love in the world honestly after the two years that he's had to come back like this yeah to be the i think statistically the best goalkeeper in the europa league is a lot of credit to him and it it was stressful but it was all worth it in the end and um yeah it's a huge occasion occasion for the club yeah certainly i think i was really surprised by you both saying before the pods and and our little warm-up chat that spartak have conceded the least goals in the group. I mean, partly I shouldn't be surprised by that because I think Vittoria's defensive principles are one of the strongest parts of his management style. But that's taken into account the shipping four calls against against Leicester as well. But Alexi, have, have you got any fun stats or any good stats for, for us that came from the game? I know you mentioned straight after the one about the, the, the Spartak topping the group, which was quite a good one. Yeah, Spartak has stopped a uh, uh, European group only the second time in the history. In the first one uh, was uh, quite well known in 1995 when they won all the games in the Champions League group, which also included Legia, by the way. <laughs> it's really funny how history just repeats itself sometimes like that. But yeah, yeah it's... <laughs> and I... I'm running out of praise for the performances in the last couple of weeks. And 
we discussed beforehand of why I think it, it, there is a dichotomy that exists right now with Spartak where you can't take their European form without unfortunately having to mention the the league form, which has has picked up a little bit recently. But I think part of that is is Vittoria's defensive principles. I think the way that he's instilled them in Spartak. Don't get me wrong, Tedesco's football was very exciting to watch. I, re- I really like Tedesco and I wish him the best at RB Leipzig as well. And you could see just how all the fan base and and the players really and the, the, the staff at the club sort of rev- took to Tedesco. And, and I don't think anyone's ever really had a bad word to say about the man from a personal perspective. But it was at times a little bit of a... I think I mentioned on the pod last year when he was manager that it was a bit of a glass cannon. Very, very silky football, very aggressive, but defensively very frail. Vittorias came in, instilled these defensive principles. One of the big things he's really done that's so effective for me is Spartak's midfield is far more disciplined than I've seen them in recent years. Um, Litvinov, Umyarov, Zobnin, Hendricks, whoever's playing in that role, even if it is the more inexperienced pairing of Litvinov and Umyarov, they're just considerably more disciplined and and, far, and and provide a far more effective cover for their for the defenders, and that's really been shown as well in the transition to like the five two two one four three four two one, however you want to say it. Um, they had some setbacks at first in that, but and the but the the tactical plan that he had for the Leicester game away, and then. The Napoli, both Napoli games, and the Legia one of sitting in a low block, soaking up the pressure, minimizing the space in the th- middle third of the pitch, allowing them a little bit of, and uh, kind of sacrificing a little bit of space in the channels, letting them control the wings to an extent, but and then breaking as fast as they can to whatever direct to Sobolev, or in this case over the top to Bakayev or Promes, whoever. It's really taking getting the best out of a lot of different principles of the Spartak team and really suits European football really well. And I don't think it quite suits the RPL as well, Alexi. I think it is fair to say that the performances in, in, in the Premier League has been a little bit disappointing of late. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, there have been uh, some historical parallels with uh, this season in uh, 1975, uh, Spartak did very well in the UEFA Cup. Uh, they knocked out Köln, they uh, reached uh, Milan, and they even defeated them in a return match. But uh, in the league, they they showed just dismal form and finished only 10th. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. It's funny how some things that are just so very Spartak have kind of always been very Spartak all the way throughout history, even from the top to the bottom, where it's kind of like a little bit of a basket case at the top at times, kind of happened all the way back to 80, 90, 100 years ago when you had the the people who were in charge of the club in and out of the gulag in Staritsyn and his brothers. But Hanu, focusing back on onto the match for a little bit, is there anyone who really impressed you. Um, obviously, Bakayev got his goal, but I thought he was really good in playing and in what is an unfamiliar role as the, like, the most advanced player. Yeah, I think the obvious uh, shout is Selikov, but after him, I think Bakayev was probably our second best player because 
not only did he score the winning goal, I think he did a great job of progressing the ball and keeping it. Um, the chances that came came through him a, a fair few times. And yeah, he just did his job well. Um, I think the midfield was pretty decent as well. Uh, Omiarov is a brilliant young player. And Litvinov, though he didn't play today, he's also been stellar throughout the campaign. Um, so yeah, I really liked how, how Bakayev played. And it's, it's reassuring that we have a fair few attacking midfielders that can all do their jobs differently. Ignatov uh, can play pretty well, play, play at like a European level. Bakayev can do the same. Uh, Quincy Promise and Moses, obviously, two of our best players. So, um, yeah, I think I think it was it was a good, resolute team performance. And I think Kofriye as well deserves a lot of credit, especially with yeah. unbeaten. Uh, he's unbeaten in, in the Europa League. Uh, draw against Leicester and then three wins. Mm-hmm. And he was instrumental in all of them. Very reassuring defender, calm presence on the ball, fighting mentality. So I think he deserves a lot of credit as well. Yeah, certainly. I think that was the the big weakness against Leicester was Patson Daka pretty much on his own, exploiting Raskasov's kind of naivety in positional in a positional awareness. His basically Patson Daka didn't really do anything of note. He just used his raw pace and made the same run four times in behind Raskasov. And he let them make that run. It was that naivety. And Kofriye just made that back three look far more stable. And Moses definitely... Uh, Moses has been so good in this in this sort of like six-game run. Like Not only is he using his elite-level experience and age to, to really benefit from some of the younger players around him, like Litvinov and Ignatov, he's becoming a real leader in the squad. But just from a bare statistical point of view, obviously started all six games and has got three assists, got the goal, uh, created more big chances than anybody else uh, during the course of those six games as well. And has just been, for me, one of the standout players across the course of the six, even the first two, when when obviously the, the results weren't going the way that we were hoping at the time. But um, just absolutely so so impressed by him, and to be honest, a little bit surprised by the the quality of of the play. Because if we, if you look at the the groups as a whole at the start of the competition, for me, the two standout teams in the entirety of the Europa League at that point, before obviously the the Champions League teams dropped down, the two standout teams in terms of individual quality were probably Leicester and Napoli, the two sides that Spartak have in their group. They went to Leicester, got the draw with a brilliant defensive performance, and are the only team in the world to beat Napoli twice this season. Like, <laughs> what is that? To, this doesn't happen to Spartak. This is why we're waxing so lyrical about them. But I, I, I'm, I'm running out of superlatives to use, to be quite frank. But Alexi, what, what do you think about the, the performance of, of the group stages as a whole and, and maybe last night in general? Uh, I, I really like Mikhail Ignatov. I think he's showing some maturity really beyond his years. Yeah, he's uh, finally coming into his own uh, after all that uh, happened in the intervening years. Uh, I read somewhere that he was an, uh, an avid gamer which uh, uh, sometimes interfered with his training. I think he's he was playing a lot of Dota at one point. He said that somewhere. <laughs> That's cool. I am. Um, yeah. To be honest, I know that a lot of some players have actually mentioned that 
they're they're playing together on video games. Like I know uh, this was actually a Sun- not Spartak related, but it was a Sunderland player, young Dan Neal. He's only nineteen, so he's a one of the new generation coming through at the club. And he actually said that he plays with two of his teammates who are also only 18 and 19 every single day. And it is really helping them build up a communication. Like Obviously, it's got nothing to do with football, but they kind of spend so long with each other in the daytime training, playing together at weekends, playing games together at nights, that they're really building up a good rapport. And Yeah, maybe. Mm, uh, sorry, maybe gaming sort of uh, became a new social, uh, new social uh, uh, team action that which sort of uh, replaced uh, drinking. Maybe <laughs> you know, I <laughs> read uh, a similar, I, I read a similar mm, thing in a wrestling book, an all-time wrestler, Mick Foley. Uh, what? Uh, observed the new bunch of uh, wrestlers in WWE and he also said that uh, instead of uh, coming to drink together or whatever they sit in their rooms and play video games yeah I mean I think for Spartak it's far better having Ignatov sitting playing Dota than having Denis Klushakov wander about the streets drunk with a guitar cheating on his wife <laughs> um, but Alexei if you go straight back to yourself what have you heard in the, the latest regarding Rui Vittoria's future? Uh, of course, he was given a, a, a standing ovation by the Russian journalists at his press conference after the game. And some people have started to interpret that as, as maybe a goodbye, with obviously all the rumours of his resignation in the winter. But what what is the latest you, you've heard on that? Uh, I don't uh, know much inside and forward, actually. Uh, Igor Rabina wrote an article today uh, which said uh, something of the sort um, <clears throat> firing uh, Vittori now would be a betrayal of football. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so too. There's a an, a good article on, on Regista, friend of the site, a sister site to ourselves, and they basically say that the, the, po- the potential resignation of the Portuguese is not just an ugly decision, but also a logical. Um, the claim that it's basically using the example of Loco is indicative for what could happen um, with with Nikolic. Nikolic wasn't liked by those in the board, and they replaced him with Marcus Gisdol, who Rangnick has as his like kind of henchman. And Loco are what now seven games without a win, having lost five straight in a row. Uh, Hanu, what what do you think of Vittoria? I think we were all a little bit hesitant about him at first but I know that you're a, you're a big fan of the man both as a me man as a genuine football manager and a person yeah I think um, as, a, as a person definitely first and foremost he seems like a very nice uh, person a consummate professional family man just judging by his, his uh, posts and stuff and he gets the club tries to resonate with the fans a lot and I mean it, the, 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 his record speaks for itself, right? It's the second time, it's, it's the first time in 12 years that we've gotten out of any group, like actually qualified, not finished third. Um, second time in our history, like we said, that we've topped any sort of group. That too, with two of the most uh, valuable and like biggest clubs in the entire competition, holding our own against them and actually coming out on top against them. 
So his his record speaks for itself, and I think he's clearly shown that he's a very capable at developing talent, whether it's with the likes of Omiarov, Litvinov, Ignatov, um, the way he uh, his his staff have revived Selikov. They've given debuts to uh, players like Denisov and Melnikov as well. So yeah, he's, he's a very very competent and very likable football manager, and the league form as well. There are questions, of course, but some of those games, how unlucky we were in a lot of them, especially the CSKA one um, and a few others like those. It's some of it is some of it were bad performances, some of it was luck. But um, yeah, I, I have nothing but praise essentially for uh, for Vittorio. Yeah, I think I remember saying at the start of the year that obviously we. I spoke to Joel Amorum, our RFN colleague, who's a Portuguese and an expert in Portuguese football. And he had, I mean, Joel's a very welcoming man in terms of his comments on football. He, he doesn't like to really say anything too bad about footballers because I think what's really nice about Joel is that he always remembers that first and foremost, footballers are humans. And that's sometimes a little bit hard for us to, easy for us to forget when you're sitting behind a microphone next to your keyboard, and you can you can get caught up in, the, in in that a little bit. And I really respect Joel for his humanistic view towards that. But when Vittoria did sign, he he really he was really not happy with the transfer. As also a Spartak fan, um, he he was just saying that he's the man just got no aura about him. Uh, was really poor at Benfica in terms of results and tactics, and that. We did see a little bit of that early on, but to, to his credit, he came in with uh, under a huge cloud of everybody want, not really wanting him there or questioning him at every turn. And he's he's really turned that around. I mean, the the after the win against Napoli, when that that meme was born of him kind of just smiling and shaking his head after Spalletti refused to shake his hand, somebody who's feeling the pressure really heavily doesn't act like that. That was such a natural reaction that really showed his personality in my point of view. It was it was really nice to see that from him because I think the person in charge of Spartak has to be a character. Tedesco was the same, Carrera, Oleg Romancev, Romancev all, all of Spartak's big managers in more recent history have been as big a character as they are tacticians. Alexi, what do you think historically? Do you think that's the case? Do you think that managers of Spartak need to be charismatic and has that shown throughout history? Oh, well, uh, Spartak uh, had been uh, managed by like uh, uh, four managers in 48 years. So, <laughs> yeah, the, that's uh, that's true. They, uh, they first Guliaev and Simonyan who um, sort of uh, replaced each other a few times. Then Beskov and Romansov and some uh, intervening years, uh, Salnikov, uh, Krutikov and Yatsev. Mm-hmm. They only worked for a year or less. So, yeah, Spartak uh, manager uh, should be charismatic, if not outwardly like uh, Tedesco Carrera. Uh, but mm-hmm. uh, players should... Uh, yeah, Spartak managers should be uh, either what, either charismatic or imposing, like uh, say Romansov. Yeah, certainly. I remember reading a story. Uh, I think it was 
oh, who was it now? Was it? I think it was Titov, Yegor Titov, discussing Romantsev from from back in the nineties. And he was saying like when when Romantsev would walk into a room, he could just kind of feel the man's presence. And I think that works. Having an aura like that works in two ways. He can either be quite charismatic. Or like you said there, Alexi, it could be real imposing and maybe authoritarian even to an extent, which obviously you see like less and less of. Yeah, definitely like Beskov. Um, you, you see that less and less in the modern era, that more authoritarian figure. So I think it is easier for managers to be more charismatic, more passionate. Uh, Vittoria is not quite like Tedesco, where Tedesco was so passionate and you could see him really wearing that on his sleeve. that like He was almost like a boiling pot at all times, whereas Vittoria is far more reserved. And early on, I think that shift from Tedesco to Vittoria and him not being like that maybe showed him as just being a quiet man and and not really having an aura when in actuality he does have one. You can see that of late. You can see the respect that the players have for him in merely and just even, even see it in the, the way that they look at him when he's giving instructions. Sometimes players just don't keep the eye contact. Whereas every time I, it was when um, Alexander Lomovitsky came on and he was getting instruction from Vittoria b- before he actually came up to the touchline and he was just hanging on his every word. And I think the reaction of the players is really the easiest indicator of getting a measure of the man. And it would be, and I didn't think I would say this. I, I'm eating my hat and I'm, I'm going to say at the start of the season, I was wrong and I, I'm totally on the Vittoria sort of train now, even though RPL results aren't still aren't the greatest and there's a hell of a lot of room for improvement. I think what he's doing in the Europa League shows his tactical nous and especially as a defensive manager. And if he can be allowed to work on that and then, I mean, it's, it's defensive football, but it's not negative football. And I think there's a massive difference between the two. And you can... And obviously, you scale that to your opponent. You scale that to your competition. And hopefully, the results domestically can come because in terms of European, this has been some of the most enjoyment I've had as a Spartak fan. Uh, as, a, as a last on, on Vittoria, I'll just quickly quote a Championat article by Dimitri Zeman. Now, he was at the press conference in Warsaw and has actually wrote another article detailing in quite some depth uh, some trouble before and after the game, which is a, a shame to see, and hopefully anyone involved in that are are safe and well. But on Vittoria, he said that um, after his historic victory, he entered the press centre to applause of the journalists. Not only did the Russians clap, but also a couple of Polish ones. He began to speak, but he made, as it seemed, several important references, hinting at an, hinting at an imminent separation. He separately thanked the people, those whose names he did not name, said that it was more pleasant to receive congratulations those of wish to, who wish the team well. And at the very end, without question, he spoke of words of gratitude to the fans. And it seems that the end of Rui and Spartak is getting closer. So this is obviously just this one man's opinion after what he had witnessed. But I think that could be quite telling that Vittoria was thanking the fans, thanking the journalists, thanking staff members in this press conference after this kind of what is the zenith of his of his tenure so far, really? Uh, Hanu, have you got any any last words on on the game in particular from last night? Because I think to quickly end on the football, I was I just want to mention, and I think everyone will hear it at the start of the pod, but just how much of an absolute 
giant gladiator Samuel Gijo is from, from <laughs> yeah. a defensive perspective. <laughs> yeah, no, honestly, it was just an extremely memorable campaign and I hope it continues. Um, we're in the round of 16, so it's good for the coefficient, it's good for the club, it's good for everyone. I think there's a lot of evenly matched uh, teams. Like, we've already played well against two of the best teams. There's no reason why we can't keep doing that. Um, but yeah, honestly, super happy for the club, super happy for the fans, super happy for everybody. And it's something that I think everyone will remember for a long, long time. So you mentioned their round of 16 as well, just for everyone who may not be aware yet. I think everyone probably will be, but with the introduction of the Conference League this year, the format of the Europa League has changed slightly. Uh, Spartak now advanced directly to the round of 16. And the round of 32 technically no longer exists. It's still a round of football. But it has been officially renamed as the knockout playoffs. So basically the teams who finished second in the group, the eight teams, are joined by eight teams who drop down from the Champions League and they play each other. And the winners of that then go through to play in the round of 16. So Spartak don't have to play in that round now, which is why... Finishing top was so important on on a on Thursday night at the time of on the time of recording. So if we do move on uh, to the first European game that took place, and that was Zenit um, three. Oops, Alexi. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, a, a last word about uh, the the Lega game. I saw a stat on Twitter that uh, Peck had scored uh, his last eleven penalties before being stopped by Selikov. Wow. <laughs> Bloody hell. I mean, it wasn't the greatest of penalties, but I've I seen the, the commentator again was saying that. Like, yes, absolutely true, wasn't the greatest of penalties. But I've personally, I don't know about anyone else, but I find it really annoying when the goalkeeper, like, you just, that that's their hit. That was his initial reaction was like, oh, the penalty's at an easy height. Like, it doesn't matter if the penalty's at an easy height or not. For me, the onus should always be put on the goalkeeper for making the save. Yeah, they did the same thing about uh, Jamie Vardy. And that wasn't a great penalty, let's be honest. But like, I think our goalkeeper coach also put out a tweet saying that it's not luck, it's hard work. And he posted two of the screenshots <laughs> of both of those saves, which clearly means that there was some emphasis placed on saving penalties and having a look at who might take them, which I mean, mm. paid off. Yeah, I remember. Who was it? Um in, not not that long ago, I remember watching a, a knockout cup game, and and it was it went to penalties, and was it was it Kepa Arija Balaga or was it Willy Caballero when he when he came on for Chelsea in that game and had that whole meltdown? It yeah. might have been him, but yeah, I think yeah. he had like a, a note of like players who would take it and what side they usually go to. So like if he had I don't know um, Obama Yang, he had like oh usually goes to the right, and then like a, lo- a full list. Which I'm, yeah. I'm surprised he's allowed to bring that on the pitch with him, to be honest. But it it just shows that you said, Hanu, that the hard work isn't is, is is the research as well as the work on the training ground. So just yeah, absolute absolutely. absolute hero, Sasha Selikov. Uh-huh. And I genuinely didn't think I would be saying that sentence at the start of the season. But if we do move on now to Zenit Chelsea, three um, three on the night, which is a very respectable and well-earned result for Zenit against the f- defending champions of of the Champions League. Uh, it started quite poorly, though. Um, uh, 
first of all, it, it's probably worth mentioning that this game, for Zenith's perspective, is pretty much a dead rubber. Um, they could only finish third. Um, they were only merely playing for pride. Whereas for Chelsea, they did start a largely quite strong team, um, missing some big names in Ed- Edouard Mendy, Thiago Silva, uh, Antonio Rudiger, Kai Havertz was on the bench, Christian Pulisic was on the bench, Hakan Ziyech. So it was a mix of first-teamers and some backup players for Chelsea. Still a prodigiously talented team, don't get me wrong. Um because they'd already qualified, they have an important game at the weekend, but they had to win to win the group. So it started off very favourable for Chelsea, uh, Timo Werner scoring from just two minutes. And then the first 15 minutes or so, give or take, was as you would have expected the game to really to really play out, with Zenit dominating chances, dominating possession for, for that opening period, really starting to turn the screw after they got that early goal. But then... Zenit, to their credit, really turned it around. And I think to the goal scorers, of course, but as well as that, um, Douglas Santos, Dalekazyaev, Wendell, really, really performing very well, began to get in, not just get in the ascendancy, but started to really dominate the game. And then by half time, um, Claudinho equaled, uh, leveled the scoring. And then just three minutes later, Sardar Azmin put Zenit ahead for 2 1 at half time. Um, in the second half, Romelu Lukaku evened things up after the hour mark. And then Timo Werner scored right at the start. He also scored right at the end, just five minutes left. And then in the 94th minute, Zenit got the equaliser from the returning Magomedos Doyev. So it was a, for me, it was an excellent and highly respective, respected performance from, from Zenit, to be honest. I thought Claudinho just is. The what one of the big things that Zenit needed to get to that next level, Hanu? Yeah, definitely. Um, Zenit credit to them, honestly. Uh, they're through to they're through to the Europa League as well, and it's they deserve it. Let's be honest. Uh, I think it's fair to say that I, I watched the first half. I watched bits of the second half. They outplayed Chelsea to a large extent, which is creditable. You can say all you want about the injuries or the players that Chelsea didn't play but at the end of the day they are European champions they battered Juventus um, and yeah the goal, the, the goals were great everything was good and I think uh, Sergei Semak also now finally has some breathing room when it comes to his European performances because he did top he did top the group in 18-19 uh, but the following two seasons after that were Hugely disappointing for Zenit. Um, but I think this time they've, much like us, placed a lot of uh, placed a lot of impetus on playing well in Europe. And I think it's paid off for them. And interested to see how they do in the knockouts of the Europa League. Yeah, certainly. I, I, I think that as well. I think they they actually played back four last night, didn't they? They didn't, didn't return to their, their three that... Uh, served them so well in some of the other games in the group, but I think that's exactly why they brought Claudinho in. It, it's to obviously he's going to make an impact in the league, but they're buying him to make in chiefly an impact in in the Champions League in Europe, and I think that's the been the the main focus of their season this season. Uh, and every year, I suppose, with keeping such a settled squad like they have in the last couple of years, 
you're obviously going to see some form of natural progression when players get used to playing at this elite level, get used to playing a higher quality of opponents because when Zenit four years, three years, four years ago, whatever it is now, first returned back into the Champions League, a lot of these players hadn't played at that level together for a sustained period of time before. So it's going to take some adaptation. But I think the biggest change for their fortunes, if we discuss more generally Zenit in Europe this season, is actually Sergei Semak's development in Europe. I think in previous years, he was far too naive. It was always either... It's originally started out as what going all out attack and just getting absolutely battered. But then you got the Dortmund game where it's let's just sit back for 90 minutes, let's just cling on to what we can. And then someone would in- invariably, inevitably almost make a mistake, like Karavayev that time against Dortmund. Yeah. Um, and Zenit can't play like that. Semak isn't that sort of manager. It takes, it, I mean, like it's like Victoria meant earlier. Playing defensive football, playing direct football, it's not very popular. A lot of people disparage it. They don't like to watch it. I can understand when you see just how good some silky sort of one-touch fast attacking football is. But it's not like you can just suddenly say, right, we're going to play defensive this week. Let's everyone sit back. It takes an incredible amount of coaching just as much as it does to to teach a team to, to play possession football or whatever. It is a highly skilled tactic to be able to sit back and do that. And Semak hasn't shown that he can instill that in his players. Now, don't get me wrong. They have defended excellently at times this year, this year in the league, but I've just seen all around just a more mature and less naive performance from the Zenit players. And for me, their standout player during the entirety of the group stage, even though, as the moon's got the goals, Claudinho and Malcolm have maybe shown more flash. Zuba has been Zuba and just been big and brutal. But the best player for me during the entirety of the six games has been Wendell. He's mm. he's brought something to that Zenit midfield that they severely lacked. He's basically Barrios just further up the pitch in terms of quality. And I know you're a big Wendell fan, and I know you you were you were quite happy or you were quite excited to see him when he signed for for Zenix. I remember laughing, being like, who is this guy? I've never heard of him before. And I was totally wrong. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the credit has to be given to Zenit is that they've, uh, ever since they signed those three players, um, Barry Ostrogitsky and Azmoon, in like the space of five days, they've made very calculated, uh, qualitative and incisive um, additions to their squad. Like, they spent a lot of money on Malcolm. He didn't really do too much for the first two years, but now he's been very very good recently. Claudinho is a phenomenal signing, evidently. Uh, Wendell was had a bit of a slow start, but even now he is playing extremely well. And Douglas Santos too. Douglas Santos, I think, is very underrated. I think he has like the highest chances created of any fullback, or or some some very uh, impressive stat in the entire Champions League. So they've managed to they've managed to build a very good squad, and I think they've managed to more importantly build a better system because like you said the thing that was off with them over the past two years in the Champions League was that they played exactly how they played in the RPL um, which was relying heavily on Zuba and Zuba and Azmoon basically right and their tactic in the RPL was that these two big man little man partnership up there um, Driussi on the wing who was widely inconsistent 
Kuziaev on the other side because Malcolm was injured for a while. But now they've sort of transitioned to a system where you've got two very good wingers, a good striker, two good strikers that keep sort of uh, rotating, and a solid midfield with each player knowing what they have to do. And we often, I think, said last year and the year before that was that the reason why Russia was so bad was due to bad management and um, bad game management, basically, and lapses of concentration. But I think this season we've seen that Vittoria, he managed well. He managed in a pragmatic manner. He set up his teams well and he reaped the rewards. And Semak as well, he learned. He knew what he had to do. And he ripped the rewards as well, which we can't say about men like uh, people like Murad Musayev at times or Goncharenko at times. Um, and of course, the, the team that didn't uh, finish bottom of their group and are objectively the worst team in the entire Europa League, who he'll get to as well. Um, so yeah, it just, it just tells you how much that uh, managerial aspect can matter in these situations. Yeah, certainly, certainly. We'll we'll get on to that last one with the fraud of a manager in charge at a fraud club. Uh, sorry, Ilya. But um, in terms of Senate for the next round, obviously they are they don't have the buy with Spart that Spartak have because um, they're not as big a club. Sorry, Senate fans. No, I'll stop. I'll, I'll stop the. No, they are. They are. It's fine. We, we can have our fun. This is this is the one episode oh, where we can have our fun. David's not here to tell us to not talk about Spartak for 45 minutes. Exactly. Oh. No, that's, that's, that's the thing. Uh, yesterday was that. This is why we decided to post so many memes. It was like, this is a generational event. This is the, like the second time in 100 years, first time in 25 years. We're allowed to have a night's worth of fun for that much, even if it looks uh, like however it looks right. Um, so yeah, we're, we're mean, allowed when, one episode. When Legia won, you had Dinamo posting pictures of of Legia players and all that and Shemansky celebrating because he's Polish and all that so they can't they can't say anything it, it, it'll happen both ways and it'll happen again good and bad both ways so yeah, let's just enjoy the moment like we lost 7-1 it, it doesn't get much worse than that. <laughs> I don't I don't think it gets worse than that right so if if, uh, if that happens to us then I think we're allowed like a couple of days of fun um, so yeah <sighs> I remember being so optimistic before that 7-1 game for literally no other reason than I think just blind faith and hope. And then was it just like message, messaging you being like, oh God. <laughs> yeah, like I think uh, because even we sort of make jokes around in our uh, chat with the other admins that, oh, what if we lose 5-0? And that was that's the worst case scenario. And this time it was actually worse than the worst case scenario. So we, we, I think we didn't talk for three days. We were just, uh, yeah, we were just Shit. sad. So yeah. So speaking of sad, Zenit have to go into the knockout round instead of the round of sixteen, like Spartak do. So they're going to be unseeded for the draw. Uh, the eight teams who drop down from the Champions League are unseeded, including somehow Barcelona and Sheriff Tiraspol in the same group. <laughs> and then Rangers, Sociedad, Napoli, Olympiacos, Lazio, Braga, Betis, and Dinamo Zagreb, who finished second in the Europa League, are seeded. So do you think Zenit have got? A decent chance of getting through to the next stage to to meet Spart to potentially potentially join Spartak in the round of sixteen. I'll be honest. I think they do. I think out of those eight teams, I would fear probably Lazio the most. Um, sort of common wisdom would tell us to fear Napoli, but we don't fear Napoli here. 
Um, and they've been they've been inconsistent as of late, despite a, a blistering start to the season. Um, Real Sociedad, too, they're they're a tough club to go up against, but I think Zenit have a chance at beating every one of these teams. Whereas I think if they came up against uh, Leipzig or Dortmund or Atlanta, even I would I wouldn't be as optimistic. But I think um, Zenit can fancy their chances against any of these teams over two legs. Yeah, definitely. It would be great if they beat Rangers. That's just my own personal bias coming into <laughs> it. But uh, I, I agree. I think it's it's weird because the draw has been designed so that the Europa League teams get the advantage because they have the seeded teams play at home last, so they get the home advantage. But there's no away goals anymore. So mm-hmm. surely they would rather play each other. Like if you're, I don't know, Napoli, surely you'd rather play without any disrespect to them, Rangers, Adina or Zagreb, than Barcelona or Dortmund. I mean, saying that everybody's going to want to play Sheriff, even though they beat Real in Madrid. <laughs> Everyone's yeah. going to want to play them. But it just seems a bit odd. Like it, it seems like it's, despite the fact that they've said this is going to favour the Europa League teams more, it's actually favouring the Champions League teams more because... Away goals is abolished. Yes, they've got home advantage, but I mean, it doesn't mean a whole lot of as much as it used to. Yeah, it sort of nullified the purpose of seeding, I guess, because like the teams that are seeded, like you say, they should have an advantage, but it's like the unseeded teams are all better here. Um. So yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't think it will make much of a difference. Um. And it is hilarious that Barcelona. Are an unseeded <laughs> team in anything, um, but yeah, I mean, let's let's see how it goes. It is. It has certainly set up a very competitive uh, last sixteen mm-hmm. plus, uh, and it's twenty four teams. You know, some guy was saying that anyone can win any game in this. There's really no favorites, uh, which is very interesting, of course. Is this the first time Barcelona have not been in the Champions League knockouts uh, and have been in the Europa League instead? I think it's. I think. 2003-4 was the last time they they were here. It's funny Jesus. because uh, this is, I think, that time as well, it was the first season. It was the season before Messi came, basically. And this is the season after Messi left. So, yeah. and all through that, they were in the Champions League. They were winning it. They were doing well. And as soon as he's gone, they're... Uh, I like how you said that, like, like Jesus, like Messi BC and Messi AD. Yeah, that that is... <laughs> That is how it is. That is honestly how it is for them. Um. But I think, I mean, it's going to be, it's going to make the Europa League more interesting. I mean, the Europa League is already a better competition than the Champions League this year. It's already more interesting. It's already more competitive. Yeah. And the the Conference League's actually only increased the competitivity of the Europa League because the kind of your know, Zalgaris's and Flora Talons and Limerick and some of that no name place like. I don't know, like um, Glen Torrens of the world are in the yeah. Conference League now. They're not in the Europa League anymore. So every single game in the Europa League is genuinely pretty close. Like you, you've got your Leicester, Napoli, who should have been better, should have probably finished top two in the group. But because it's so competitive, they didn't. Legia were top of their group after top of the group after two games. Spartak went on to win it after being bottom after four. Could have finished, yeah. were literally one kick away from finishing third or first in the 97th minute of the match. It's far better than the Champions League in terms of entertainment. And I think the Conference League is partly added to that. 
Yeah, for sure. And it's added. Um, it's given a place for the clubs in the Conference League to actually have a chance of doing something. Because typically, what happens is mm-hmm. in the Europa League, you have four teams. Two of them battle the other two teams, and it becomes very boring straight away. But this time, I think there's been a lot of competition. Like this time, I think two teams had nine points and finished third in the Europa League, which on any other occasion never happens, right? Uh, yeah. It's typically nine, and you go to the next round. And of course, our group, which was just insane, honestly. Uh, it was, I think, Sparta could have finished first, second, third, or fourth, depending on those two results. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's great entertainment for uh, for the fans, for the for everyone. Honestly, it's it's super fun. Yeah, the only time I can remember that happening late was what twenty eighteen when I was just googling it there for anyone wondered why my keyboard was dying. It was at Siska when they beat Real 3 0 and still like didn't qualify from the group. Yeah. They had like what, 10 beat us points? home and away. No, no, I think they had seven. I think Oh, it was uh, seven. Ah, it's not as good as yeah. I thought. Yeah, but the thing was they finished seventh and they finished fourth. You don't typically finish fourth mm. on seven points. You, you usually get third. But I think that was again that goes back to the managerial point, right? Goncharenko, he bottled against Victoria Pilsen, Blitzen, however you say it. Um, and if he had just held on there, may- maybe they would have, you know, finished third or whatever. Yeah, definitely. I am. Um, by the way, for anyone wondering, um, we're not just kind of like ignoring Alexi. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he had to leave for the second half of the pod because he's he's preparing for a gig tomorrow in Moscow. Um, he's also a lead singer of a band as well as like four thousand other jobs. Um, so he's not just kind of like sitting, not saying anything. <laughs> so don't don't worry. He's, he has had to leave the pod early, unfortunately. But uh, we'll finish off last with the team who deserve to be last because they finished last, and that's uh, Lokomotiv. They lost again, 1-0 to Olympic Marseille. Uh, the first half, nothing happened until Arkady Schmilek scored a uh, header, uh, assist from Cengizune Unde Unde. Um, it's maybe a bit harsh to put a little bit of a blame on Kudyakov because, I mean, Milik was totally, totally unmarked, but he's He's also got the run across the goalkeeper in his own six-yard box and knocked it in from a header. Um, yeah. It was poor from Kudyakov, but because he's only 17, uh, I'm not even going to bother lambasting him for it. Like, he's at an age yeah. where he's going to he make mistakes. Dying. He's a little yeah. dying, so you can't be too harsh, yeah. Um, and then, I mean, plus that sort of physical battle is, is understandably where he's going he's gonna to suffer the most. Um, the bigger problem though was the other side of the pitch where all 10 outfield players were pretty shocking. Um, I mean, Loco didn't have a single shot on target during the entirety of the game. They barely had any of the ball, barely had any attacking intent and that wasn't just by choice. It was it was also by inability. Even when Marseille went down to 10 men, when Ronega got sent off or Rongier, Rongier got sent off, it, it was just it was just absolutely nothing. It was just so passive. It was just it, it's literally Marcus Gisdol over the last what seven games where without a win, two and fifteen now. It's just there's just nothing about them anymore after looking so good under Nikolic. You've got right. I mean, for anyone who may have missed it, um, Jochen did an article for Goal.com in England where he basically called Rangnick the biggest fraud in Russian football right now. And he's he's absolutely right. He's went in there, yeah. destroyed the squad, stuck some bloke in who doesn't even know, doesn't have a clue where he is, never mind what he's doing on a day-to-day basis. 
and the players are just looking rudderless. These are the, uh, largely a lot of the same players who performed so well under under uh, Nikolic. Like, yes, he's tore up the team and made it younger and introduced some new fresh faces in. Some signings have been good. I think Yedvai's been decent in the league. Uh, Pablo has been probably one of the better players this season. But that front, that forward partnership of Smolov and Kamano just tore the league apart. And yeah. now there's there's just nothing. Like, they literally offer absolutely nothing. Like, Kamano went off injured. What was it after like an hour or so? No, it was in the first half. Sorry, it was after half an hour. Kamano went off injured for Rubchinsky. And you literally might as well have not even realised that that substitution had taken place because neither of them were in the game at all for the entirety of the opening half. I'm going to have to stop. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's like... It's so bad. Like, it's so... Locomotive, I think, had the worst possession stats in the entire competition, the worst XG differential in the entire competition. And this is the same team that won 12, 12 in a row uh, earlier this year with Nikolic. This is the same team that drew home and away against Atletico Madrid with the worst squad. This is the same team that revived players like Fedor Smolov, who is invisible now again. And... We can we can talk about the microscopics, we can talk about individual games and so on. But like there needs to be an actual like federal government investigation into Ralph Rangnick. Because I don't think I don't think what he has taken public money. Okay, he has taken money that could have been invested into trains and railway infrastructure. And he took a functioning... I think what I did last week in the other podcast was I compared Ralph Rangnick to colonialism. And I think it's a good comparison, right? Because this foreigner comes in, okay? He acts like he... he act, first of all, he looks down upon everyone. Okay? He, he tells everyone, you don't know how things are done. I'm going to make you good. Comes in with this sort of cultural uh, bias. Says that I'm going to... You know what? I'm going to make you serious. I'm going to change things. I'm going to change the way things are done around here. But all he does is he, he bankrupts you, takes away your people, completely messes up your entire uh, dynamic, whether that's the club or the country, and then just dips and there's no repercussion. That is exact. That's that's what happened to India, right? And it's the same thing this man has done to Lokomotiv. And he's gotten away with it. Like, I, if it wasn't Ralph Rangnick, I think this man would unanimously be the worst sporting director in Russian football history. Easily. Because... It, it, like, it's honestly hard to do worse than what he did. And you, where do you even begin fixing it? Do you sack Gisdol already? But then if you sack Gisdol, what about the 75 other people that he brought along with him? <laughs> what do you do to them? Um, and then the people have just replaced him with is, is literally Zorn, who was already in there doing nothing <laughs> after doing nothing at Sparta. And then Kornetka, who who is just like... Ragnik without the name, you've got the same person, but you haven't got the the bit that was good previously. You've just got his mate. Who's what's he doing? I mean, I don't like everyone who's travelled Moscow or anywhere in Russia. I'll know like whenever you get on an RJ Day train, you'll see like before you walk in, it's like four thousand signs of like ninety nine point seven percent of RJ Day trains are on time today, yeah. and then it's like or have been on time this year. I seen a tweet where literally uh, since Ragnix came in, RJD's effectiveness has went down. So not only is he at fault yeah, for the entirety of colonialism, exactly. he's also at fault for the lack of punctuality of nationalized nationalized trains. 
Yeah. No, it, 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 yeah. It, it, it's beggars it's, belief yeah. how bad he's done considering the name that he is. Like, even just his reputation alone from what he's done elsewhere, both as a director and as a manager, and what he can do. And when he came in, we were like, why is he doing that? Like, well, that's a weird thing to do to sell that player and replace him with who the fuck's this guy? But you, I think everyone gave him a bit of time because he has that name. It's the opposite of Vittoria. Literally, Vittoria's doing shit, and everyone's like, what's he doing? Why is he doing that? Because he came in such a bad reputation. Ragnik is one of the biggest names in football. He's at Man United, for Christ's sake, for absolutely no yeah, reason other than is. the fact he's called Ralph Ragnik. <laughs> yeah, like... It there is honestly no superlative. Like I think you could have built a team of RFN affiliates and they would have done a better job at locomotive. Like you could give David this David the scouting part, could get somebody to do something else. And it's they gave him complete freedom to do whatever he wanted. And it's the fact that he just left. You know, he didn't see his plan out. He just left is I think the worst part of it all. Like he didn't have the yeah man. It's just it's just I feel bad for locomotive honestly. I do as well. Like I've genuinely never seen anyone fall upward so well as Ralph Ragnick just had. He's literally went to a club that was successful, stable financially, successful in Europe, but to an extent. I mean, they just got beat of Bayern Munich after a very gutsy performance, like you said, draws against Atleti. Brilliant in the league, really upwardly mobile with an exciting manager playing a different style. Like they were one of the most upwardly mobile clubs, even after Moranchuk left. Nikolic's job to replace Moranchuk was so good. And he's left yeah, yeah. Honestly, like a steaming yeah. pile of shit. Like there's no other word to say, like what it is. I didn't mean to use the word steaming as a pun because trains, but they're just, <laughs> it's, it's horrific. Like honestly, you would an RFN affiliates would do better. Like some of the guys I know who listen to our pod week in week out would have done better. Like imagine how good that press box would be if Ilya was in charge exactly. of hospitality. Yeah, honestly, yeah. I mean, like Nikolic was. I was. I was. I was a Nikolic fan from the moment he came in. Nobody gave him a chance, but I was like, you know what? Let's give this. And that was that was actually mostly due to my sheer hate for Yuri Semin. Uh, that anyone against him, I was just willing to give a chance. But he turned out to be a proper man. He made Rifat Jamalatinov into arguably the best player in the league. He, Jamalatinov was irrelevant before Nikolic came, right? And like we, use, we throw the word crisis a lot in Russian football, right? But I think this is an actual crisis where you've got a dysfunctional squad, a no-name of a manager. The players are publicly speaking out against how bad, I mean, against how bad the training methods are and everything. You're broke now. Um, you've got lots of players on just newly signed contracts that can't go anywhere. And you don't even know where to start fixing it, honestly. Um, which is honestly just like it's it's depressing. And in any other league, like Rangnick could not have, I don't know, done this to Brighton and gotten away with it like this. Or done this mm-hmm. to some club in Spain, Italy, France, wherever, right? Um <laughs> But yeah, I mean, it, it, it's sad. It's sad. It really is. And then not only has he done all this, but he's up, felt upwardly mobile into the biggest, probably one of the most highly paid jobs in the entirety of the world, and just went to all of his mates, just like, "Go on, lads, you all take over now. It's your turn." I mean, I, I'm yeah. literally looking through, like, because Argentair is a is a um, open joint stock company. They're 
their like interim financial positions must be uh, publicly re- released because it's nationalized. Now, if you look at if you go down to go from 30th of December 2020 to the 30th of June 2021, their liabilities went down from 5.27 million to 5.69 million. Those liabilities only went down because the biggest liability has just left the club. He's an absolute <laughs> fraud. I, I feel so sorry for the local fans. It's like I'll, I'll finish it there because we can't talk about local anymore without just being irate about how shit it is. And I don't blame the fans for not going anymore. You've seen the game at the weekend. There was nobody there because they're either just totally sick or infuriated by what's going on. And to move on from that, there was an unfortunate incident that took place again in France uh, at, at involving locomotive fans. And that was the, again, some overexertion of police powers against Russians in France. Um, a whole document has been drawn up in a letter stating that locomotive fans from 8am on December the 9th to 4am on December the 10th were prohibited from using public transport, prohibited from parking in districts in Marseille, and prohibited from v- visiting the vol- velodrome. Um, this was released when Russian, these local fans were already in Marseille. What do you want them to do? Just like disappear. Like It's, it's, it's ridiculous. Their reasons are uh, the European Championships in 2016, obviously the serious violations of public order. Um, another reason was that Marseille fans often demonstrate their aggressiveness and Russia's in the red zone due to coronavirus restrictions. Now, I understand what happened in 2016 was shameful um, from the French police, from the organisers, from the ultras in Russia and the drunken English idiots. Uh, I understand that because Russia are in the red zone. Un- absolutely, yes, I can see why they need some form of restriction to protect populace and protect people, save lives and so on. What, just to prohibit the entirety of Russia from visiting France is, is kind of ridiculous. The overexertion of police powers and detaining of the of the fans who were, it wasn't even like, like anyone who was causing trouble. They were just like picking people up who had any form of Russian accent. This is like it goes in championat. The article goes on to like the way that they were doing it was disgraceful, and the worst part is is that among their reasons for this official document from the Marseille government, local government, whatever the hell it was, is that some Marseille fans often demonstrate their aggressiveness. They shout insults at rival buses and guests' fans, use violence against law enforcement agencies, throwing pyrotechnics, fumes, or explosive materials. So what they're literally saying in an official document. Is that locomotive fans were detained because the Marseille fans are arseholes? Marseille fans, they can't control themselves. Yeah, what is unbelievable? And it's not obviously the first time this has happened in in recent times with the Siska fans who were detained in St Petersburg. And again, I mean, like I say, some of the reasoning I can understand, but it's again just a, a bare abuse of power from authorities against a populace it, if this was any other nationality of people that wouldn't happen yeah it would definitely wouldn't and um good like like you mentioned the cska game as well that was a uh, pretty messed up what was going on there for no real reason um because of the pyrotechnic show i believe they put like 500 fans in a paddy wagon for hours without food air water whatever and 
it became a huge scandal rightfully so all the different clubs and their fan groups came out in support of CSKA fans and then the typical uh, response was that oh we can't really do an inquiry because uh, CCTV cameras were hacked because of course they were um but <laughs> yeah Epstein defense? Mean, exactly the Epstein defense um but I mean let's see what happens the the Khachaturian acts or whatever his name is the new guy the new RPL president he does <laughs> he is offering uh words of encouragement he he he's talking like he has a plan which to be fair everyone does um but let's see if he can you know help in sorting a few of these things out hopefully i mean dialogue would be a good start because there hasn't been dialogue in these situations regarding the over abuse of police powers towards russian fans yeah. i mean away from them off the france thing in in russia there's been no dialogue on that it's all top down decisions being like we are deciding this for you there's there's no fan groups no organizations not even the clubs officials for the clubs on behalf of the fans were even ever consulted so hopefully the fact that dialogue can exist and may exist at one point is is is, is a good start and yeah. hopefully can move beyond that because it's it's becoming a joke an, an absolute joke uh, it's worth noting that back on the france thing um this championat article by Paulina Kumova was published in today it's 1 a.m. UTC, so basically overnight, give or take, when she wrote it. Um, and at the end, it says, at the time of publication of the material, 14 fans are still on the territory of the stadium under question by local police. There's been no update to that yet. That's like 24 hours since the game, and there's been no update as to whether or not these 14 fans are still in the stadium. Like, what's going on? It's it's just, it's not good enough. But uh, we will finish finish now the end of the pod we went on for for long it's been a little bit of a longer one because like it's like we both said earlier i wanted to just uh enjoy the moment with with uh, sasha selikov and spartak uh doing doing a one and and making some history obviously it's the only the second time in 100 years that they have topped a european group so yeah. that sounds good <laughs> that just sounds good to say um everyone will be back to the usual usual time next week we'll be recording next thursday obviously without the uh european games to take into account um it's going to be our last pod of the season and there's a little bit of a, a, a spoiler and sort of teaser to what ahead of that we're actually got a guest on with myself and richard and it is uh anna from football radar a lot of people probably see her in the the Rex, the Russian football lexicon. Her ads yeah. are uh, at FR Football Anna. She's an Aust- Austrian football analyst who's a specialist on the Austrian Bundesliga, the German Bundesliga, RPL, and is also a Spartak fan. So we'll be discussing a lot about the German influence in the RPL of late: Rangnick, Schwarz, uh, Tedesco, Buvac. Maybe not Gizdol, but all of that. <laughs> well, we'll probably get some on, on Gizdol, but maybe not his influence, but rather how poor he is. So this has been the Russian Football News Podcast. Goodbye for now. <laughs>